I'm Dan Wakefield. I'm a writer. This is a show of words and music. Hey there, I'm Sophie Fott. I'm a musician. We believe music and stories are made for each other. That's what we'll give you. Our show tonight is our unsung Hoosier heroine, Janet Flanner. Our <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> our guest is Professor Ray Peterson. And joining me on the stage are musicians Joel Tucker, Hannah Marks, and Susan Anderson. Coming to you tonight from the Blockhouse in Bloomington, Indiana, this is the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. Totally unrehearsed. <laughs> well, before the show, uh, three of us were talking about how it seems a shame that in schools uh, we're never really taught or told about the great writers that come from Indiana. And um, we know a little bit now more about Kurt Vonnegut because there's a Kurt Vonnegut Museum in Indianapolis. But uh, we know about Ernie Pyle, but uh, not about Janet Flanner. Uh, one of our friends here said that he knew about Janet Flanner, but had no idea she was from Indianapolis. And we all think it would really be a great thing for students to know, to be inspired by these people who've done great writing, who come from here. Not students, but just, not just students, but everyone. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, she did, you don't have to live your entire life in Indiana for us to claim you, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Janet is ours. <laughs> Thanks. You can get out quick if you want. <laughs> Dan, Dan didn't live his entire life in Indiana either, but he's bookending I, it, and that's what counts. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be back, but here I you know, in, in Janet Flanner's circle in, in, uh, in Paris, there were a number of Midwesterners who were in, in, in a variety of fields who were her very close friends. For instance, um, Virgil Thompson, the musician and composer, is from Kansas City, but you, you, you probably have heard of him. But Ned Roram, um, who composed the opera version of Our Town, is from Richmond, Indiana. Margaret Anderson, who founded the Little Review, is from was born in Anderson, Indiana, and lived a, a great deal of her childhood in Indianapolis. And then um, Maine Bacher, who uh, changed his name to Mambocher, who's a fashion designer, comes from Illinois and was a, uh, and dressed Janet when she lived in Paris. Uh, there's another guy you may have heard of, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he also <laughs> comes from Illinois. <coughs> Who's he? Yeah. <laughs> well, so Ray, can you tell us about the brief period of time that Janet did spend in Indiana? Where sure. was she born, and you know what did she do in those early years? Sure. Um, when I tell people that I work on the the Paris expatriates who lived there between the wars, but not the famous ones, right? Not Hemingway, not Fitzgerald, not Gertrude Stein. People say, then like who? And I say, well, like Janet Flanner. And and people say, well, who is she? And then I say, her father founded Flanner and Buchanan Funeral Homes in Indianapolis. 
Oh, and then, and that then they say, one. Oh, yeah. well, that's why you study her <laughs> then. And then I say she wrote for The New Yorker for 50 years. But um, Janet was born in Indianapolis. Her father was in the funeral business. And um, when his youngest sister was married to Charles Buchanan, he expanded the business and invited him into it. And uh, they lived in a variety of places, mostly along Meridian and Illinois Street in, uh, in downtown. And she went to Tudor Hall School, which was the girls' part of Park Tudor. And she graduated in... She graduated in 1909, and um, she went briefly to the University of Chicago under two years there, and then came back to Indianapolis and wrote for the Indianapolis Star. And she was the first person to write about movies for the Indianapolis Star, among other things. Not movie reviews, but about movies. The first movie reviewer for the Star was Georgia Buchanan, the other part of <laughs> Flanner and Buchanan. <laughs> so we Why are these people even famous for funerals? <laughs> yeah. So, Ray, you, you mentioned that in those days, it was not a point of pride to be involved in the funeral business. Is that right? No, the, the Flanner family was really embarrassed. They had uh, three daughters, Frank Flanner's wife, Mary Hockett Flanner, and the daughters, when they were asked what their husband father did for a living, they said, he's in real estate speculation. <coughs> At that time, real estate speculation was considered a far more honest uh, way to make a living than in the funeral industry. I, I think we should also mention that Ray Peterson, uh, aside from being a brilliant professor at Ball State, is writing a book about a woman named Salita Solano who spent uh, most of her life, or most of Janet Flanner's life, they spent together. It's true. They uh, they met in I think in 1918 in New York City, and um, and they were really essentially together as either romantic partners or business partners for the remainder of their lives. So why was uh, Janet Flanner in New York City to begin with? Well, she was trying to get away from Indianapolis. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that's that's difficult for me to reconcile because I live in Indianapolis and I love it is that Janet Janet did not find Indianapolis very hospitable. Although um, we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but her father um, died from suicide, and I think that there was such a stigma around that um, at the time that she felt uh, sort of persecuted by people talking about that. Also, Janet was a lesbian living in uh, Indianapolis, and I think she felt that getting away to New York City was a way, a, a way to live in a freer environment. Although the way she went about that was probably a big mistake because she suddenly married a man she knew from college and, <laughs> and went off to New York with him, and, and shortly after arriving there, um, met Nasa McMain, who is a, a, a very famous uh, magazine illustrator who lived in New York at the time. And I think Janet had kind of a rabid crush on Nasa McMain, and uh, Nasa McMain was a member of the Algonquin uh, Wits, the Round Table, and took her to that, and that's where she met Salida Solano. That's also where she met Jane Grant, the husband of Harold Ross, the editor of the New Yorker. And it was really through Jane Grant that had the idea of asking Janet, when she was in Paris, to write the letter from Paris for the New Yorker, which became a standard, uh, famous feature. And in fact, uh, reading those letters from Paris, well, one thing, it was a new kind of journalism because Harold Ross gave her, her only instruction was, I don't want you to tell us 
about what you think is happening in France. I want you to tell us what the French people think is happening in France. So she said she had to really devise a new way, a new kind of style. And in fact, her she felt that it had to have a personal slant and hers not only had a personal slant, but usually a real zinger at the end. And it, it, it occurred to me that people of my generation who I love and have great respect for, like Joan Didion and uh, Gay Talese, but they're sometimes credited with inventing the new journalism. But Janet Flanner was doing that kind of journalism uh, a long time before in Paris. Right. I think um, if the dictionary at the time had had pictures in it, when you looked up snarky, which wasn't a word then, there would have been a picture of Janet Flanner. But Dan... I'm really glad you mentioned that Jane Grant was married to Harold Ross because another um, thing that um, Janet Flanner had in common with Jane Grant in New York was they both belonged to the Lucy Stone League. And the Lucy Stone League was an organization of women who signed a pledge that if they married, they would not change their names. And so very early on, Janet was a feminist. And when she uh, came back from the University of Chicago, she wrote for the Indianapolis Star for a while. She wrote a column called Excursions and Impressions in the Field of Art. And she was about 19 years old when she wrote that in the voice of somebody 40 going on 112. Um, (laughs) But she was a very feminist voice in the Indianapolis Star. If you uh, go to places where the star is on microfilm, you can look these up. For instance, when they were building the new public library in downtown Indianapolis, which is now the old public library in downtown Indianapolis, and when they were putting the friezes up in that building of famous writers, um, she tried to imagine Sappho, who wasn't there, tucked in between the the busts of Omar Khayyam and um, William Jennings Bryant. And she said... uh, She said, oh, what things Sappho would have to say to those gentlemen. (laughs) She she also said at one point in there that the reason that women in the Midwest did needlepoint was because it was preferable to doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) So that... (laughs) She was a feminist, and um, she also sort of had a different view about suicide, probably because of her, her father's suicide. She didn't necessarily view it as a sinful act right? Uh, kind of more like a liber- liberatory act. And that was her first bond with Ernest Hemingway because his father had committed suicide. But I want you to tell us, Ray, how did the Indianapolis Star cover her father's funeral? You know, as I said, suicide was taboo at the time, and so the family immediately put out a rumor that um, he had cancer and that he had uh, died from suicide to spare them from a a drawn-out illness. Um, But as a mortician, he had uh, the availability of toxic chemicals, and so he just went around to a variety of drugstores one morning and filled prescriptions that he wrote for himself for toxic chemicals and then went back to the mortuary, told his young assistant that he had a headache and he was taking a nap and, uh, and then consumed the chemicals and, and, and died very soon. But the, the front page of the Indianapolis Star said, F.W. Flanner is suicide, long ill. And um, the and the family really clung to that idea that he had uh, an illness, though there's no documentation of that anywhere. Well, I think the band is going to play a song, maybe a siren song, calling Janet to Paris. Hopefully, she'll get there soon. <laughs> what are we playing? I forget. Don't mean a thing if it don't have that swing. One, two, one, two. <laughs> 
I think it's important to note that when Janet did have her conversation with Hemingway about their fathers committing suicide, they both decided, and Hemingway was very emphatic, that he felt suicide was not some tragedy, but an act of liberty, if you felt that it was time for that act of liberty. And so when he did commit suicide, she didn't, uh, Janet didn't take it as a tragedy, uh, but rather as his way of finding the liberty he felt he needed at that time. Yeah, I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from one of Janet's uh, columns from The New Yorker talking about that. Uh, Ernest's father had also been a suicide, and so had mine, the two deaths occurring at about the same period of our young lives when we were in our 20s. I recall how I, as an agnostic, took a more rationalist view than he of suicide as an act for freedom. In my mind and conscience, it was a possible, permissible act of liberation from whatever humiliating bondage on earth could no longer be borne with self-respect. And our talk ended with the mutual declaration that if either of us ever killed ourselves, the other was not to grieve, but to remember that liberty could be as important in the act of dying as in the acts of living. So years later, I did not believe that Ernest's death in Idaho from that grotesque gunshot was an accident, as officially reported at first. I automatically recognized the shot as his mortal act of gaining liberty. Well, let's, uh, let's move 
back to New York with <laughs> okay. Janet and maybe even cross the ocean and get to Paris. Okay. How does that happen? So let's do that. So quickly. Um, so, so Janet was in Indianapolis writing for the Indianapolis Star and she wanted to get out of here. Um, and so she, um, she married a man she had met in college. His name was Lane Ream. His friends called him Rube, if that helps. And um, <laughs> by 19, um, she had already met Salida Solano. So she wanted to, she and Salita Solano wanted to get away and start a new life for themselves. In 1921, um, Salita Solano, who was the writer, Janet was, Janet was, you know, came to New York as like a hometown newspaper writer, and Solano had published stories, et cetera. And um, Solano won a um, contract from National Geographic to report um, from Greece, from the war in Constantinople, and from Vienna. And so in 1921, she took her first class ticket to Greece and uh, split that in half and bought two steerage passes, and she and Janet just ghosted on Lane Ream. Janet just (laughs) didn't give any excuses. She just left town. In 1923, on their way back from those assignments, they they waited for a while in Vienna because the uh, National Geographic had promised Solano that they were going to get them into Russia and that they would be the first female reporters inside Russia. But National Geographic could not swing that. And so in 1923, they visited Paris, and then they came back to the United States. Um, She filed her stories. She turned in all the camera equipment that National Geographic had loaned her. Um, They went to California because uh, Janet's mother had, had, had sort of uh, pressured the, her youngest daughter to enroll at Berkeley so that they could move to California together. And so they went to Berkeley and said goodbye to her mother, and, uh, and they moved to, uh, to Paris together, and they settled in Paris on the left bank in 1924. And that was the place to be at that time. It was, and, and the other thing about it was they were, that when they went in 23, they just felt like, it, like they met Natalie Barney, and, uh, and they met a number of, uh, Sylvia Beach, they met a number of um, uh, Americans who were lesbians who had relocated in Paris, and one of the things that they found was um, it wasn't that Paris was so permissive about uh, queer-identified people at the time, but that Paris sort of turned a blind eye on whatever Americans did. I mean, remember, <laughs> this is... This is the period when Americans were allegedly lighting their cigars with 100-franc notes, right? So everything Americans did was crazy and eccentric and broke the rules, and so people looked the other way um, as they just went about their lives there. And also, at that time in Paris, were some of the greatest American writers. Uh, not only Hemingway, but E.E. Uh, e. Cummings, Hart Crane, John Dos Passos, Another great woman writer of the time, Kay Boyle, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote for the New Yorker, among other places. It was a, it was just a real hotbed of innovative, new at the time American writing and experimentation. And in 1924, she sent a letter to Jane Grant, which is filled with her famously descriptive passages. And Jane Grant showed that letter to Harold Ross, and then they suggested that they start a column in the New Yorker called Letter from Paris. Uh, One of the things about her work, the New Yorker was just starting up. Harold Ross had been an editor at Stars and Stripes, and uh, he wanted to create a, a humor and news magazine, uh, a marriage of the two. And so he was starting The New Yorker um, for readers who were not the little old lady from Dubuque. But that's when he gave her the directive to write um, about Paris, not as Americans see it, but as the, as the French see it. And he gave her the name Genet, um, which he spelled uh, G-E-N-E-T with an accent 
over the second E. It's, it's not really a French word. <laughs> but we think that um, that was Harold Ross's idea of how you might go about spelling Janet in French. <laughs> as far as how uh, the French see Paris, I don't think there's any better song than La Vie en Rose to portray that. So that's what the band's going to play next. Thank you. 
By the way, you're listening to Susan Anderson on the violin, and Joel Tucker on the guitar, and Hannah Marks on the bass. This is the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam coming to you from the Block House in Bloomington, Indiana. Well, let's go back to the left bank in the 20s, and I would love for you guys to drop a few more names and just tell us how many important people were there at that time. Well, I, one thing I've been dying to read all night and just <laughs> short excerpts from it, but one of the things I love that uh, Janet Flanner wrote, and this is one of the important people of the time, is Isadora Duncan, the dancer. Hmm. And just from her profile, I will read this. On the continent, Isadora was more widely known than any other American of that decade, including Woodrow Wilson and accepting only Chaplin and Fairbanks. <laughs> She penetrated to the Georgian states of the Caucasus, riding third class amid, amid fleas and disease, performing in obscure halls before yokels and princes when she, who she left astonished, slightly enlightened, and somehow altered by the vision. For 30 years, she, her life was more exciting and fantastic than anything Zola or Defoe ever fabricated for their heroines. She had a party that began in Paris, gathered force in Venice, and culminated weeks later in a houseboat on the Nile River. I think we've all been to parties like that. <laughs> and finally, her ideals of human liberty were not unsimilar to those of Plato, those of Shelley, those of Lord Byron, which led him to die dramatically in Greece. All they gained for Isadora were the loss of her passport and the presence of the constabulary on the stage of the Indianapolis Opera House. <laughs> where the chief of police watched for sedition in the movement of Isadora's knees. <laughs> <laughs> you can't beat that. <laughs> well, let's get back to Janet as Janae and uh, tell us a little bit about what sorts of things she wrote about in the 20s and um, how her contributions to The New Yorker kind of started to shape the tone of the magazine. Sure. So her style was really to be very descriptive, and then and then always to have an ironic twist. And once you get used to reading her, you think you think, oh, what will the ironic twist be? I'll bet I've got my, I've got I can guess it. And you're always wrong. Um, one of the things that comes out in the biography of her is how she agonized. She wrote a fortnightly column, so every, she sent, she wrote two columns a month for the New Yorker, and they were, you know, as journalism goes, fairly short. Um, and, and she agonized and agonized over these. And you think, like, how would you agonize over the letter from Paris? But when you read them, you see that every, every word in them is just exactly and thoughtfully and carefully chosen. And it all leads up to this ironic twist at the end. She started the column in, in 25. And, you know, by 1929, Americans could not afford to um, travel to Europe. So she was writing for people who, who really um, just wanted to, to know about Paris. 
I, I loved in her uh, piece on Hitler, which she was trying to be uh, not condemning that. This is 1936. She was trying to just do a profile of a regular man. And one of her phrases stuck with me. She said that uh, he didn't like a lot of people around him. And so in this huge Reichsfuhrer house he had, he only had three servants. One was a cook, and Flanner said he lived in agitated simplicity. I love that. <laughs> you know, after the war, she took she took a lot of hits for that profile of Hitler because she felt that her job was to be a journalist and to be impartial and to simply go and gather the facts and report them. And so that the way that Janet actually ended up um, meeting and interviewing Hitler was that she was going to Germany with Noel anyway. And um, on that trip, a number of their friends went. Um, Jane Heap went, and um, uh, Margaret Anderson, and Salida Solano. So uh, the way I calculated it from reading different people's letters and accounts from it is that there were seven lesbians in a car driving through Germany. And um, at one, on one day, they were going to go horseback riding, and so they had breeches on. And they were pulled over by SS troops who made them, on the side of the road, take dresses out of the trunk of their car and change their clothes because German women were not allowed to wear pants. Also, during that um, sort of nerve-wracking ordeal, one of them began to smoke a cigarette, and they were told that German women were not allowed to smoke, and neither would they. And then at, at bayonet point, they had to put on lipstick before they were allowed to continue on the highway. So that I think that I think that in spite of her attempt to be balanced, she she knew what was what. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> where do you go from I there? I have no idea how to segue from that into the next song. <laughs> it's up to you, Sophie. <laughs> I'm trying to think of Sorry, something. Sophie. I think I, I think I have that effect on people a lot. <laughs> oh, what can I say? I think the point the point to make here is that we need to play a song.
This is the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. I'm Sophie Fott, and this is Dan Wakefield. Our guest is Ray Peterson, and we're coming to you from the Blockhouse in Bloomington, Indiana. And let's see, we left off at the dawn of World War II. So let's get into wartime. Okay. Uh, in 1939, after their family members had begged them to leave Europe, um, Janet was really on the fence about whether to leave Europe or not, and she wanted to stay in Orgeval with Noel. So they, they went back to New York in, um, in 1939, and Janet had hoped that, the, that after her long service to the New Yorker that they would hire her to write from New York and she would um, come home to the United States to live. But the New Yorker said, you're really only valuable to us when you're in Paris. And so she, they gave her office space to work on some writing, but they wouldn't hire her to write uh, a regular column unless she was in Paris. So I think uh, the band is going to play a song um, that's sort of tied to this time period. It was first recorded in 1940. Uh, it was written by Django, and it's entitled Nuage. It became uh, the anthem for the French resistance, and it sold many, many copies, which in Nazi-controlled Paris and the part of France that was controlled by the Nazis, uh, jazz was definitely suppressed. They did not approve of it, although in some cases they allowed it to exist in order to sort of gain favor, I guess, with the French people. One of the organizers of the Hot Club of Paris actually used his job uh, booking gigs for the group to spread intelligence information for the French resistance. So these were, you know, the jazz musicians and and their supporters were some of the people who were really interested in fighting the occupation and being a part of the resistance. And uh, I think this song is a really appropriate one to play to kind of pay homage to that spirit of resistance. <laughs> Thank you. 
Flanner, of course, uh, one of her important pieces uh, of reporting, she covered the Nuremberg trials and in a really brilliant way. And that was one of her, uh, one of her journalistic triumphs. And also, Ray and I just saw uh, this afternoon a film interview with Flanner and the writer Glenway Westcott, who was there at Paris in the 20s. But she talked a little bit about de Gaulle and how important he was in creating symbols and that though uh, the Allies had freed Paris, de Gaulle organized a parade <laughs> to go march down the Champs-Élysées of French soldiers and go to the Arch of Triumph as if they had conquered Is Paris. And uh, people loved it. And it, it gave them a good feeling about themselves. Yeah. And the French army was dissolved when the, when the Nazis came in uh, to France. Uh, and their uniforms were destroyed and their banners were destroyed. But de Gaulle had secreted away some banners or knew where they were. And he gathered together a bunch of former soldiers and got them in ragtag uniforms and staged this parade to walk under the Arc de Triomphe. And we have audio of Janet from the Blue Network reporting on that. This is part one of Janet Flanner for April 3rd, 1945. This is Janet Flanner in Paris. General Charles de Gaulle's splendid military parade, which he gave to the city of Paris yesterday, was something like the bread and circuses which Roman emperors used to give to their people. Lots of ill-fed Parisians would rather have had bread too. However, few cities can refuse a bang-up, beautifully produced, patriotic parade when it is offered them, especially with the excitement of victory in the air and the end of a war in sight. As a matter of fact, the end of the war being so close was just what made some people wonder why de Gaulle and his parade didn't wait for it. Certainly the reason for yesterday's parade was one which could have been combined appropriately with a victory celebration since the parade was given in honor of France's reconstituted army. When the Germans conquered France in June 1940 and Marshal Pétain signed a humiliating armistice, its terms disbanded most of France's armies. French soldiers and garrisons were ordered on German officers' demand to step out of their uniforms and into civilian clothes and to go home in defeat. And before they went home, to turn in their guns and their regimental banners. But the regiments were considered dead. France's army was considered dead. This original French army, de Gaulle has just reconstituted. He called France's army back to life by calling its regiments back into existence. And by restoring their banners to them in public, on the Place de la Concorde, in Paris, yesterday morning before the city's citizens. I think we have to say something about her accent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not how Hoosiers talk, right? <laughs> it makes her sound very that. intellectual. Well, you know, it reminds me, somebody asked George Plimpton once where he got his accent, and he said, I made it up. So uh, that's probably what Flannard is as well. 
Well, we're going to kind of celebrate. Uh, we're going to play a tune um, that was written for the liberation of Paris and kind of celebrate Paris getting back all of those treasures and being free from those <laughs> types of bureaucratic minds. This was written by Django in 1944, and it was sort of supposed to be in the spirit of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. It's called Artillery Lourde. <laughs> It's important for one thing to say that when she did go back to France, she was in war zones. She did report from places where fighting was going on. So she was a legitimate war correspondent. Mm -hmm. By the way, Sophie, you, you said that at one point it seemed like she had become a Parisian. And I think that, that's true. And France considered her that way mm -hmm. too and she was awarded the Legion of Honor, and she had a little red piece of cloth she wore in her lapel the rest of her life. And I think that's something that's overlooked when people talk about great writers that are, what is their distinction? Janet Flanner won the Legion of Honor and the National Book Award in 1962 
for a collection of her letters from Paris. But I thought it was wonderful that France gave her their highest honor. It's something that's so tellingly and heartbreakingly Hoosier about her. When she received the invitation to um, go to the ceremony for the Legion of Honor, she just thought, oh, ho-hum, another ceremony, and she didn't go. She found out that she had won the Legion of Honor when William Shawn, who was then the editor of The New Yorker, cabled her and said, congratulations on winning the Legion of Honor. And she thought, oh, I should have gone. (laughs) (laughs) They had to mail it to her, actually. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned, Ray, that she herself didn't really uh, have many personal possessions at all or collect art. She simply admired it from afar, I guess. She uh, she lived in hotel rooms all of her life in Paris. When uh, when she and Salita first went to Paris, they rented an apartment near the Jardin de Plantes, but it was too expensive and they had to give it up. And then they moved into student digs um, right right near the Sorbonne, and they lasted there a very short time because of the noise. And um, and then their apartment became available. They lived in for 16 years until the war, which was the maids' quarters in a hotel that they did own some pieces of furniture which Janet transferred to Noel's farm in Orgeval, but she, all of her life she lived in a hotel room. She owned almost nothing. So of all the things that she accomplished in her life and all of the, the people she got to interview, I'm curious, just your opinion, what do you think was the most memorable or the one she was the most proud of? I think tragically she always felt that writing for a magazine was a waste um, because people throw magazines away. And she wanted to publish books because people keep books. And um, she was embarrassed of the cubicle city later. She, she understood it was overwritten. But um, she, she, wanted to write a, she wanted to write a book of history um, toward the end of her life very much. But she also doubted that she had the, um, the stick-to-itiveness to write a book-length manuscript. And so she... she kept threatening to leave the New Yorker and go write a history of, of France. But, but at the same time, she kept sabotaging that plan because I think she was assailed by self-doubt. But really, her, the, the pieces, the, the big profiles she did of artists really is a book. Mm-hmm. And she just didn't accept it as that, I guess, because it was first uh, profiles. Well, some of you know, like our Paris journals were collected, and when and when they started collecting the Paris letters and bringing them out as books, <clears throat> she and William Sean, who was the editor at the New Yorker at the time, um, he he offered to edit these for her. And when they looked at her first columns, they said, "Oh, they're just so touristy and they're fluffy. You shouldn't re you shouldn't republish those." And so she agreed with them, and they published the Paris journals, and they, they didn't publish Paris Was Yesterday until after they'd published Up to the Minute, her, um, her work as, as collections. And then when they published Paris Was Yesterday, 1925 to 1939, it sold the best. And when she reread them, she said, you know, they, they do hold up better than I thought. Janet Flanner remembered the time she first saw Josephine Baker in Paris. Josephine Baker was one of the great dancers of the 1920s of that whole era. And Janet Flanner wrote this about her first appearance in Paris. She made her entry entirely nude except for a pink bandana, a pink feather between her limbs. 
she was being carried upside down and doing the split on the shoulder of a black giant. Mid-stage, he paused and with his long fingers holding her basket-wise around the waist, swung her in a slow cartwheel to the stage where she stood like his magnificent discarded burden in an instant of complete silence. She was an unforgettable female ebony statue. A scream of salutation spread through the theater. Whatever happened next was unimportant. Well, cheer us up with a happy song. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess before we play this song, I just want to thank everyone for being here tonight and taking the time to explore with us the life of this amazing Hoosier woman who achieved so much. And, um, you know, though she had doubts and though she, of course, was human and fallible, she did some pretty incredible reporting at a very difficult time in human history. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to celebrate our unsung Hoosier heroine, Janet Flanner. We're going to close out with Sweet Georgia Brown in celebration of Sweet Janet Flanner. <laughs>
Ray Peterson, our guest, Dan Wakefield, my co-host, and my name is Sophie Fott. Thank you so much for listening and being here. And uh, we'll see you on the radio, or hear you, or something. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>